I know it's cliche. I know. Another podcast that needs your support. That's the business we're stuck in, unfortunately. You can make a podcast. You can put it out there, but you can't sell it. Even if it was a buck an episode, you know, people spend a dollar on a fart app on the, <laughs> on the app store. Nobody would pay for a podcast if you charged a buck for it. And free is empowering because anybody can make a podcast. Anybody can, within a couple of hours, find an audience, in theory. But what happens when an episode doesn't take a couple of hours, but dozens? And what happens when you want to grow your audience to find more people? And that takes hundreds. That's a full-time job, and it's a full-time job that doesn't pay anything, which makes one wonder, what kind of person do you have to be to try and make a living off a podcast? I wonder that all the time. (laughs) What I'm trying to say is that if the lapse resonates with you, whether you've been binging recently or you've been listening for years, consider a tiny, tiny monthly donation at patreon.com slash the lapse. I'm trying my best to reach my next goal to do a, a season four of this show uninterrupted, and we're getting close, but we're not quite there, and that deadline is fast approaching. If you're browsing the app store, maybe don't buy that fart app. Or if you have to buy the fart app, uh, maybe throw a buck or two at this show. And you'll get exclusive episodes you can't find in the main feed over at patreon.com slash the laps. Thank you for bearing with me. Thank you for listening. And thank you so much for your support. With that said, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Lap Storytelling Podcast, where we tell true stories gussied up. I'm your host, Cal Jest. And today we have got a story from Mark Redmond, whose name you might maybe recognize, depending on how devout a follower you are, other storytelling shows. He has made appearances on The Moth and Risk, having spent a good chunk of his life working with at-risk youth. I've met a number of, uh, I've known a number of at-risk youth, and I I don't mean myself, I'd tell you if I did. So I'm at least a little familiar with the kinds of kids that Mark comes into contact with. Sometimes the work that you do is ripe for a tale or two. The work Mark does is pretty extraordinary. I'm calling this one Chasing Corinne. See with your ears, this is The Lapse. I just become director of what's called a residential treatment center. It was in a little town called Dobbs Ferry, a few miles north of New York City. It was for 72 boys and girls, teenagers, all of them from New York City, all of them from the most poverty-stricken, high-crime, low-income neighborhoods of New York City. A lot of these kids, either they never knew their parents, or their parents were in prison, or their parents were addicted to drugs. A lot of them had been involved in criminal activity, And they were sent there by uh, family court. They lived in cottages. It was beautiful. 18 acres, 6 cottages, 12 kids to a cottage. And my house was right next door. That was their choice. When they interviewed me for the job, they said, we're going to give you a free house. You don't have to pay any rent, no taxes, anything. Your kid can even go to the local public school for free. But you're on call 24-7. You go to bed every night, right? Half knowing I could be get a call at 2 a.m. and have to run right over and deal with something real serious. So I got there in April of 1992. 
So I was about, I don't know how many months, six months, eight months, and it was December of 1992. So it was early in the morning, really cold, freezing cold day. My son was in first grade, and I had walked him to the bus. And that was like my sacred time. That was my 45 minutes to have coffee, have breakfast, read the paper, take a shower, and then walk to work. I'm sitting there, you know, with my cornflakes and my coffee, and the work phone rings. It's one of the supervisors from one of the girls' cottage. His name was Arthur Thornton. He was on the morning shift. That new girl, that new girl, Corinne, the one who just got here, she just ran out the door and she went down the ravine. I had read this girl's uh, file, what's called her psychosocial. This girl had a a series of suicide attempts before coming to St. Christopher's, and she had only gotten here two or three days earlier. The idea of a suicidal girl running out the door, headed for the train tracks, when it's two degrees out, was scary. Really scary. I'm on my way. Put on a jacket, put on shoes, and I just ran as fast as I could across that 18 acres. When I got to that cottage, he was standing outside, and he was pointing down. She went down there. They called it the ravine. It was this thick, thick woods. It was very steep. The bottom of that woods was Amtrak trains and then the Hudson River. So I looked at it. I said, how am I going to get down there? I think the kids go backwards. I think they reverse and go backwards and they grab onto branches and vines and they lower themselves down. So I said, all right, I'll try it. Just as I was about to go down, I heard him yell, I'll try and get you help. Help? Who was who he going to get to help me? Thornton disappears behind the cottages. There are no fences on St. Christopher's western side. Symbolically, that barrier is the ravine. Shuffling backwards, grasping at whatever looks sturdy, Mark begins his descent. So I'm lowering myself down, slowly making my way down the ravine, and I get to the bottom. And now, before the Amtrak trains, is this big, thick wall. It's like a six-foot concrete wall that Amtrak had constructed a couple of months earlier. So I've got to get over this wall. No handholds, no ledges. With a leap. I somehow make it over the wall. Now I'm on the train tracks and I'm looking for this girl. It's rush hour, so you have the Metro North trains and you've got Amtrak trains whizzing by in both directions, and I'm out there dodging them. I'm looking for Corinne. I don't see her anywhere. And it's dangerous out there. I'm scared to be out there. All right, I don't see her on the trains. God, what if she threw herself in the Hudson River? The Hudson River is frozen, which happens rarely, but it was cold enough that December, the river is frozen. I make it to the side of the Hudson River. Even though it looks like it's frozen solid, it's really not. It's like plates of ice that are crashing into each other, making this weird crunching sound. I remember the weird crunching sound of the ice. I get up to the edge of the river, and I'm looking out, scanning, and I don't see her. And even if I do see her, what the heck do I do? 
I don't know what to do next. I really don't. All you know is this kid has a long history of suicide and she's in trouble. I don't see her on the train tracks. I don't see her out in the river. So then behind me, I hear this sound. And I turn around and what do I see? But 11 boys and one girl coming down that ravine. Thornton had said, I'll try and get you help. He must have gone to one of the boys the cottages and said, hey, go help Mr. Redmond find this girl. He's down by the river. Even from a distance, I could see they had this look of delight and adve- this was an adventure for them. They make it down the ravine at about one-tenth the time it took me. They scale that concrete wall like it was nothing. And now they're dodging the Amtrak trains too. My first thought is, this is really dangerous. I'm legally responsible for the lives and safety of these kids. Legally and morally responsible. We're out here dodging trains in two degree weather. This is really unsafe. Should I just send them all right back up? But I didn't. I needed them. They come up and they're like, Mr. Redmond, what should we do? And I'm like, I really don't know what to do. These kids will often form their own little leadership groups very quickly. One of them became like the informal leader. He became the impromptu leader. And he was a nice kid. But I didn't know he was like the leader. You know what I mean? Like that surprised me. (laughs) But he was. He was. And at that point, I was happy for any leader. He was like, okay, you three, you go north. You three, you go south. Everybody has their assignment and starts spreading out. The the search teams are on a mission, right? So then I said, well, listen, I'm going to go back up the ravine and back up to the campus and wait. That'll be our home base for everybody. I grabbed two of them. You two come with me. We go past the train tracks. Again, the the trains are whizzing by. We're dodging them. And then we had to get over the wall. They go right over the wall. And for some reason, I can't get over the wall. I, I try. I'm dangling. I'm hanging on the top of this thing, and I can't get my body over the wall. One of these boys, his name was Carl. I still remember his name. Never smiled. Never. African-American boy, like 15. He had already gone over, and I'm dangling, and all of a sudden I'm looking up, and I see his face reappear. Again, not smiling, and he's just looking at me. In the six months, I had had to deal with a kid with a gun, I'd had to deal with at least one riot, full-scale riot. I mean, there had been a lot of difficult interactions between me and these kids. But at this moment, he's looking down at me, I'm looking up at him. He reaches down with one arm and grabs me, I guess by the hood or the coat or the show. I don't know what he did, and he flings me over that wall. They scurry up the ravine, and I'm like clawing my way up. I remember thinking, I gotta join a gym. I am out of shape. I make it up to the campus, to St. Christopher's, and now it's it's just waiting. It's just a waiting game. Where is she? Is she alive? 10 minutes, 15 minutes later. One of the search teams has found her. What she must have done is walk north along the train tracks to the train station. And I guess her idea was to hop a train and... 
I don't know, go back into the city where she was from. So they found her and they convinced her to come back. I went home, changed, took a shower, got dressed, you know. I kept thinking, you know, what these kids did was really extraordinary. It really, these are all kids who have troubled histories. They've been in and out of the courts. A lot of men arrested by the police. And yet here they were, put their lives on the line to help me and help a, a girl who was in need. And that's pretty cool. And I thought, I got to do something to reward them. We had a kitchen that would deliver food to the cottages. So I called the cottages where these kids lived. And I said to the staff, You know, when dinner comes, don't let them sit at the table. Send them over to the, where the vans are. I'll be there with the vans. So they all, 12, the 11 boys and one girl showed up. And they said, Mr. Redman, what's up? Well, we're going to go out to dinner. We're going to go. I made a reservation at a restaurant. It was called Double Days. It was in downtown Dobbsbury. It was like a, a, a slightly upscale TGI Fridays. This was not, you know, like a five-star restaurant. It was like burgers and chicken wings, you know. I called ahead, reserved a table for 14 or whatever. We walked in the entrance, and I said to Rachel, you know, I reserved a table. One of the boys sees the table over there, like all you know, made up and everything. And he, and he turns to me, he goes, is that for us? And I said, yeah, yeah, I made, I made a reservation. Again, these are kids who'd grown up in institutions, in power, you know. He was just blown away. So we sit down at the table and the waiters hand out the plastic menus. What's the limit, Mr. Redman? I said, what do you mean, what's the limit? What's the most dollar amount we can spend on a meal here? I don't care. Get what you want. Get what you like. One of the boys goes, Woo! This is the Super Bowl of eating. The excitement in these kids is palpable. The orders are placed. The staff shuffles off. The anticipation begins. What the heck? The meals come like 20 minutes later and the waitresses are putting like two plates in front of every kid. Two entrees. For most of these kids, the nicest place they'd ever been was a McDonald's. And if you're a teenage boy or girl, what do you order when you go to McDonald's? You order two hamburgers, right? Or two, two chicken sandwiches, you know? Two, right? But that's what they had done. They didn't understand at a restaurant, you don't do that. So I just, whatever, I just laughed at it. I let it go. This is their reward, you know? I had gone on the, my computer before we left, and I had printed out this cute little hero's certificate, you know, and I had printed each boy's name in the line, and the girl, to, you know. What you kids did today was really extraordinary. I'm really grateful that you came to help me, and I'm so grateful you helped one of your peers who was in trouble. Joe Smith, come on up and get your hero's certificate. Everybody got up one by one. They all clapped and cheered. And it was really nice. It was really nice. Again, these are kids. You know, I grew up in a family where I got all kinds of awards and medals for academics or sports. And these kids, they didn't grow up in families like that. This was really extraordinary for them. I would hear about it for weeks. Oh, God, the other staff are like, that's all they're talking about. 
That's all. They're, they're heroes dinner. Going to doubles days. That's all they're talking about. People say, you know, do you follow them? Do you know how they are today? And I really have no idea. I have no idea how those kids are today. But I keep this quote. I keep this quote. I have it in my wallet. I actually have it. I keep it in my wallet and I have it pinned up at work. And I'll read you this because it really summarizes what I think about the work that I do. And it's from the Brothers Karamazov. I've never read the book, but I want to, by the Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky. And he he wrote, You must know that there is nothing higher and stronger and more wholesome and good for life in the future than some good memory, especially a memory of childhood. People talk to you a great deal about your education, but some good sacred memory preserved from childhood is perhaps the best education of all. If a person carries many such memories with him into life, he is safe to the end of his days. And if a person has only one good memory left in one's heart, even that may sometimes be the means of saving us. And I think of that day, and I hope and pray that the memory of what they did for that girl and the memory of that meal is what has saved those boys and saved that girl, Corinne, for the last 24 years, and it'll save them for the rest of their lives. It's all all wrinkled up, even. (laughs) And it's tacked to my office wall, too. That story again was shared by Mark Redmond. He's the director of Spectrum Youth and Family Services in Vermont, and he has so many stories working with at-risk youth. Uh, He started his own podcast, which you can actually listen to. Uh, It's called So Shines a Good Deed, and there's a link to that in the show notes or over at thelaps.org to check it out. As I mentioned, The Laps is trying to fund its fourth season coming up at the end of February, which I can do, but only with your help. We are now under a hundred bucks away. I know it takes a lot to type in a web address. Believe me, I, it's a pain in the ass. Let's be honest. Let's call it what it is. It's a pain. But with your help, I can truck on through and make the biggest, best season of the laps ever. That's at patreon.com slash the laps. And thank you so much to my incredible executive level patrons, Brent McDonald, Mariana Gordon, Cindy Crines, Patrick Freeburn, Rob Holcomb, David McCaw, Matthew Gibson, and Jennifer Cherney. You guys are amazing. A lot of you, you are helping make this happen. If you have a story you want to share, you don't have to have ever done it before. Even if it's something you just want to get off your chest, you can talk to me. I am at stories at thelaps.org. You can also follow me at The Laps Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates on the show. And occasionally now and again, maybe a story or two from me. Happy New Year, and thank you so much for listening.